Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune, today on the world's only rock and roll talk show. The biggest reunion tour of the summer has come through town, and Jim and I are going to weigh in on the reunited police. Plus, we'll have a conversation with the anthemic rock band of the moment, Arcade Fire. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time to welcome our newest affiliate. Greg, you can call him Slim Shady, you can call him Eminem. I think when he was born in St. Joseph, Missouri, the name on the birth certificate was Marshall Mathers. St. Joseph's is uh, right next door to Merrillville, Missouri, and KXCV has just added us. Welcome aboard, Missouri. And now time for some music news. It's time to get away. It's time to get away. That's LCD Sound System, Sound of Silver. That disc can now be found at the iTunes Music Store for a cut-rate discount price of $6.99. The iTunes Store has announced a huge number of cut-rate album downloads are now being made available, $6.99 and $5.99. This in response to an announcement the previous week by the largest music company in the world, Universal Records, that they were going to a month to month licensing agreement with iTunes. In other words, they were no longer going to a long-term agreement with iTunes to make their music available on the iTunes store. Turns out that was a poker move, right? They were basically forcing their hand. And one of the reasons that uh, Universal was indicating they went to a month to month licensing deal instead of a longer term deal with iTunes is that they were displeased with the fact that iTunes was not offering more music at discount rates. One way to read this, Jim, is it's a war of wills between the head of Universal, Edgar Bronfman Jr., and uh, Steve Jobs, the the head of Apple. Jobs, for many months, has positioned himself as the key decision maker in the music industry. But now Universal is saying, wait a minute, uh, man, uh, you know, you don't make all the decisions here. We have some say in this, and you're not, you're not following our lead. You need to lower prices on CDs if you want us to stay in bed with you. And, and Jobs blinked. He basically it, it, said, well, fine, you're it's, right. It's revealing. As big and as powerful as uh, Apple is and iTunes is, you know, if, if Universal pulled off of iTunes, one out of every three albums that people were looking for wouldn't be there anymore. Right. We've been advocating forever that the price of albums has got to come down if you want to save the music industry, the current model as it exists, and bring it online – Make it cheap and easy for somebody to download an album legally and not be ripping off the artist by not giving them any royalties. $6 for an album that great is a great deal. Really 
Greg, that is a delightful burst of power pop from 1979 by a band called the Rubinus. They were one of those wonderful West Coast uh, power pop new wave bands, the era of skinny ties, mm-hmm. lots of exuberance, lots of catchy hooks. Best known probably for the big hit they had with a cover of Tommy James's song, I Think We're Alone Now, which they credited to Tommy James <laughs> and the Shondells. The reason we're playing that song, I Want to Be Your Boyfriend, is because it, a huge blow up last week, threats of lawsuits, all sorts of debate on the internet. Avril Lavigne has a song on her new album, which we reviewed a couple of weeks ago. Shockingly, neither of us noticed this similarity, although it's right there. She sings, I Want to Be Your Girlfriend, the Rubinus completely different song. I want to be your boyfriend. Or is it? Listen to this AB, the heart of the lawsuit that the Rubinus have just filed against Avril Lavigne. Now, Craig, these stories are a dime a dozen, right? We could probably do one of these every month, and we generally avoid them, uh, except when there's a particularly egregious case. And I think this one really is. <laughs> I mean, clearly, Avril and her keepers, because it's a production team behind Avril. It's mm-hmm. not just this 20-something girl from Vancouver. You know, they just changed the sex of the song. You know, the rhythm's the same. Everything's the same. The whole concept is the same. Now, this isn't even the first time someone has changed boyfriend in the Rubinus song to girlfriend. Lush, the shoegazer band from the early 90s, recorded that tune much different because they were this space rock band, right? And they they called it I Want to Be Your Girlfriend, but they credited the Rubinus, <laughs> as Avril, I think, probably should have. She's denying any sort of similarity, though. Yes, in a long letter on her website, she said, I had never heard this song in my life, and their claim is based on five words, exclamation point. <laughs> all, sh- all songs share similar lyrics and emotions. As humans, we speak one language. Oh. Now, it's funny because it, it, she goes on to mention that, well, I wasn't even even thinking about that song. I never never heard that song, but it does sort of sound an awful lot like the Rolling Stones' Get Off My Cloud <laughs> and the Ramones' song, I Want to Be Your Boyfriend. So it's interesting. She's not saying, I didn't rip off anyone. I just didn't rip off you, Rubinos. You know, yeah, she yeah, said, yeah. the Stones, the Ramones, but not you. Uh, well, you know, but this isn't even the last of it because now a lot of people on the net are going through that Avril album and are looking for other similarities. And there is a striking one between a song by Peaches and one of Avril's songs. I mean, this sounds pretty remarkable, too. I'm the kind of shit you want to get with. I'm the kind of shit you want to get with. I'm the kind of shit you want to get with. Can you handle it? I'm the one, I'm the one who knows the dance. I'm the one, I'm the one who's got the prance. I'm the one, I'm the one who wears the pants. I wear the pants. Greg, I gotta say, the first 20 seconds of Avril's I Don't Have to Try sounds almost identical to I'm the Kinda, which was from Peach's uh, 2003 album. We talked about that when it came out. I don't think Avril personally has good enough taste to rip off the Rubinus or Peaches. I think it's her hired songwriting and producing team. Well, she co-wrote this song with uh, one Luke Gottwald, and God knows how many other secret songwriters there were involved. Because you know, there's always her, a her team. Her songs yeah. are, are are a product of a factory 
yeah. of songwriters yes. and producers. However, it's interesting. When we reviewed this record, Jim, we didn't note the similarity to the Rubino's song, but we did talk about Tony Basil's Hey Mickey yeah, as being yeah. an obvious template for this particular Where song. Where is Tony Basil? Yeah. I don't, she should she, be she, chiming in with a lawsuit, too. This could be a freaking class action suit. 700 artists sue Avril for ripping them off. But the larger point here, Jim, I think is that very few songs can really claim to be totally original works. No, I mean, of course. I, I, you know, I attended a songwriting class that Steve Earle gave here in Chicago one winter, and in the course of that class, it became very clear that even one of the most highly regarded songwriters in North America, like Steve Earle, said, you know, I ripped off everybody I could. Yeah. Woody Guthrie ripped off everybody he could. Of course. You would not have a blues canon if those guys weren't ripping off each other, if Lead Belly wasn't ripping off Sun House, or if Muddy Waters wasn't riffing on Robert Johnson. These are the kind of things that have gone on for centuries there in, is in nothing music writing. New. No, there's nothing new. So... Do the Rubinus have a stance here? Well, yeah, the songs are really similar, but the Rubinus themselves make fun of this on their own MySpace <laughs> well, site. Yeah, right. When they say, oh, yeah, the Beach Boys and the Beatles and the Raspberries ripped us off, man. It was very tongue-in-cheek. Obviously, well, all, those all those bands predated preceded, them. Yeah. yeah. So I think they acknowledge the fact that there is a huge you know, amount of stealing that goes on in songwriting. It happens all the time. So it's interesting to me that they chose to file a lawsuit here. Could it be that Avril Lavigne sells a lot more records than some of the other people who have ripped them well, off? I think it's a question of how obvious things get, Greg. I mean, you know, Roger Ebert's never sued us for ripping off his idea, but <laughs> you know, I mean, if you change it a little bit, we didn't call it, you know, Cot and Dear Goddess at the movies. That would have been wrong. <laughs> That's the police from their current tour of North America, on which they stand to make $100 million. (laughs) (laughs) This is the biggest reunion since maybe Page Plant in the mid-90s. I mean, the most hyped. It's almost Led Zeppelin. Well, this is exactly the police. This is Sting. This is Andy Summers and Stuart Copeland on a stage together for the first time in 23 years, touring North America. Tickets are going gangbusters, sellout shows all over the country. They just played Chicago, Wrigley Field, only the second and third major concerts in Wrigley Field history. Sold out, 40,000 tickets each night. This is the way it's been going around the country. Ah, but did they? Because there was an interesting side story, and this has been happening at every major city they've played, where a lot of people said, this is going to be the tour of the summer. Right. I'm going to buy some tickets and speculate. I've talked to a lot of people who bought four tickets, two for themselves and two to make some money to mm-hmm. pay for their tickets and then some. They were listing on some of the online websites for as much as two or three thousand dollars <laughs> but at the shows in right. every city. This happened in Minneapolis, this happened in Chicago. There have been people trying to sell for a hundred, hundred fifty, two hundred dollars under face value. Yeah. I bought the tickets for two seventy five. Here, please take them for fifty. So I think a lot of people thought they were going to be able to speculate, make a lot of money, and they got hosed. I think people realize, I don't want to pay $3,000 to see these guys. <laughs> it's a lot to ask to pay $275. It is. Mr. Cott, would you have paid $275 for the show that you and I sat through? I wouldn't have paid 27 cents, Jim. <laughs> I, I felt... I felt remarkably let down by this band. Uh, we just heard that flaccid version of Don't Stand So Close to Me at the top of the segment, where the band is sort of in that pseudo-jazz mode. You know, let me make this clear. 
this is a great band. There's no doubt about it. They wrote yeah. some indelible hits. They were one of the great studio craftsman bands of their time. They get into trouble, though, when they think, hey, we're a jazz band. Well, listen, though. They were never a great band live. I saw them no. at Shea Stadium, $25. Yep. Shea Stadium, you know who opened? R.E.M. How much better a deal is that than $275? Talk about nepotism. Sting's son's band? Yep. Joe Sumner is the bass player and singer of a power trio. Ooh, wow, where did he get that idea? And they're opening every show, and it's $275. You know, Greg, they weren't that great at Shea Stadium back in the day. They weren't that great when I saw them at Madison Square Garden or New York's Bottom Line, which was a small club of 500. They were never particularly good live. You know, I think this show had its best moments when they stuck closely to the original arrangements because the songs were meticulously well arranged and they had some energy you know songs like so lonely next to you those songs sounded great when they just plowed through those songs they're still a great band capable of being a great band it's when they these pretensions of jazz improv the seeds of the dave matthews band have been laid i saw i saw why the dave matthews band is the dave matthews band because i saw the police show and i go these guys must have seen the police in their noodly, new wavy stage in the early 80s and go, yeah, that's cool, man. Then there's a lot of people who think they're seeing great improvisational music. I'm saying, go see Sonny Rollins play if you want improv. Well, you These were guys harsher. are not doing it. You were harsher on them than I was. I, I think Andy stretched out on some cool prog rock solos. And I, you know, even it, when Stuart Copeland was just doing his banging on the uh, ethnic instruments thing, I'm a sucker for it. I mean, the man had a 40-inch gong. Yeah. You know, <laughs> nobody with a 40-inch gong is bad entirely. But I'll tell you what was bad. The police capped off... The show, the televised broadcast kept identifying as New York. Hey, hey, people, Giant Stadium is in New Jersey, Mm -hmm. okay? This was the last- The swamplands of New Jersey. The swamplands, well, ironically, the Meadowlands were a wetlands preserve until they tore them up to put up this stadium there, right? The Giant Stadium show concluded seven concerts on seven continents with some two billion viewers, the would-be mass hype that was Live Earth. Boy, they suck that night. John Mayer playing with the police and Kanye West coming out. This is Kanye West's jump the shark moment. I'm sorry. (laughs) You and I both think he's a brilliant producer. He's a talented artist in his own right. But boy, this is a jump the shark moment. I'm telling you everything that I know. Al Gore got my pussy, got my vote. And I'm going to tell you this because I should stand to the only police good in the hood. Greg, I tell you, I sat through 22 hours of coverage on cable, and then I sat through the NBC TV three-hour special. Why? I don't know. I mean, I look, global warming is the most pressing and urgent crisis facing the world today. There's no two ways about it. And if Al Gore wants to be the new Bono, you know, okay, more power to you, Al. You want to save the world through music. I do believe that popular music has the power to not not save the world, but inspire people to act. You know, baby boomers are fond of saying that rock in the 60s helped stop the war in Vietnam. I can play Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner for my 10-year-old daughter, and she may not know anything about Vietnam, but she can hear the anger and the passion in that song, and I believe that she she knows it's an anti-war song. There weren't enough moments like that at Live Earth, and it really made me sad. I think it made a lot of viewers disinterested. Only 2.7 million people bothered to tune in. I mean, it was beaten by a rerun of uh, Monsters, Inc. They had 9 million streams on the Internet during the day. By the way, Live 8 beat them to it in 2005. Live 8, which I think succeeded because it was a more focused event. Eight economic ministers meeting to decide the fate of the third world debt. And that concert sort of raised awareness for that event. So I agree with you, Jim. 
Yes, music can focus the population's attention on political events, but I don't think people realize, what am I supposed to get out of this show? Al Gore uh, no. comes up there and says, put all of this energy in your heart and help us solve the climate no, crisis. No, 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 no. It was the, a vague, vague no, message. No, 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 I disagree with you, Mr. Cott. I think that the between-act short films and some of the speeches, including by Gore, were very inspired and they were offering very pointed comments like, you know, you can use these carbon fluorescent friendly uh, light bulbs and if you just turn off X lights in your house instead of leaving them on, you save this much. There was a lot of great information. Where it wasn't coming from was from the artists. I can count on one hand a couple of the moments. Alicia Keys and Keith Urban got together and they played the Rolling Stones' Give Me Shelter. And you think of that as a song about the 68 riots, but then you hear the lyrics, fire is sweeping down our very streets today. And, the, and you know, could be about the fate we're going to suffer. Corinne Bailey Ray, uh, who I'm not a fan of, gets together with John Legend and they did a, a really poignant version of Mercy, Mercy Me, The Ecology by Marvin Gaye. But then I start to run out. All Linkin Park did was sweat a lot. All the Red Hot Chili Peppers did was spew more CO2 into the air. All the Smashing Pumpkins did. I mean, here's Billy Corgan. He gave a rant in the midst of a set, played two old songs, two new songs. You know what he was ranting about? Listen. Our new album, Zeitgeist, comes out Tuesday. We know you're all going to buy it, not illegally download it like you did all our other albums. Just kidding. The guy's not upset about global warming. He's upset about selling enough <laughs> copies of his new CD, which just came out last week. Is it any wonder people are tuning out? See, 22 hours of that stuff with those mess well-intentioned messages sort of squeezed between, that to me is why people didn't care. Well, Give that's me why three people hours. watched on the net. Give me three focused hours of maybe you know 10 or 12 of the biggest acts in the world and then splice together some of those really pointed messages. That would have worked. Well, they but did. Spreading NBC, this over an NBC entire did weekend really didn't, really didn't work. NBC did that. I want to go out on a high note, though, because I think the potential for something is there, and this problem's not going away, and I hope that there's another concert and a series of concerts more like this. It would be nice to see a movement that draws on music to motivate people to stop the wars we're involved in and to, to help global warming. There was a group of scientists up in the, uh, down in the Antarctic, right? Mm -hmm. they, they're working for the British government. There's five of them. They're stationed in a Quonset hut in the 15 below zero temperatures in the summer, right? <laughs> what do they have to do in between their scientific work? Nothing. So they formed a garage band. And there was a camera down there that they took their instruments outside and they played in the snow <laughs> at 15 below zero. This was a good band. And no, they're not cool. hip band. There's a little like kind of sugar cubes, shoegazer thing going on. They're called Nanata. You're right, Jim. Nanatuck, that was cool. Or, or cold. I mean, very, very cold. I mean, the coolest. <laughs> they, they, they spliced in some cheesy footage of penguins romping with the band, uh, which was pretty silly. Coming up next on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, a face-to-face -face conversation with Montreal's Arcade Fire right here in our studios.
Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, the brewers of Next Coast IPA, 312 Urban Wheat Ale, and Bourbon County Stout. Pairing beer and music since 1988, they believe it's always best to listen critically and enjoy responsibly. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. We're here with uh, two of the members of the Arcade Fire, Regine Chassain and Will Butler. And uh, welcome. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here. Yep. This band, Arcade Fire, from Montreal, what a whirlwind story this has been. Uh, You guys seem very stable and, uh, you know, uh, calm, and (laughs) it's been a whirlwind couple of years. Regine, we should start with you, though, because you and Wynn Butler, Will's brother, are really the founding members of this band. And this band has been through a number of incarnations. This is not the uh, original incarnation of the band. It, it began with you and Wynn, and there was a different band. And the story goes that that original band actually broke up on stage at one point, and, and you hmm. basically had to start over again. <laughs> Somehow, but it was not It was not like that. It was uh, just different times and... Um, I read, Regine, that you and, and uh, Wynn met, uh, you were performing at an art gallery, is that right? Yep, yep. Um, and I was singing uh, jazz, and uh, I met Wynn. But then uh, he left, but I, th- I thought he didn't like the, the songs because he, he didn't stay, but uh, I guess he liked it. Cause <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Obviously, you're a married couple now, but uh, there was a songwriting collaboration that went on there, too. Was it a case of completing each other's songs, or bringing complete songs to the other person and having them edit them? How did the uh, the songwriting collaboration sort of evolve, Regine? Um, first, it was very, very exciting, but very strange, because, like, we were playing such different kinds of music when we met. You know, he was writing songs, and I was making, like, medieval music and studying jazz, and so our styles were really clashing, but in an interesting way. Um... And when was coming more from a rock perspective, you're saying, or yeah, like more from a songwriting perspective, you know. Mm-hmm. Was he an interesting character, Regine, standing out in Montreal as this Texan up in Canada? Uh, well, yeah, like I grew up in Quebec, and uh, really, I didn't know much about Texas. So when I met this guy, I was like, "Who are you? Where did you grow up? Like in Texas?" Well, he's also six foot five and yeah. has a yeah. a relatively large head, as far as those things go. So <laughs> yeah. you see this big-headed six foot five guy, and you're like, oh, "As only a brother can say." Yeah. He looked <laughs> and, good in a Stetson. Yeah, and when I met him, he was wearing clogs, which made him even taller. <laughs> <laughs> Will, you and Wynn had an interesting upbringing. I, I've interviewed Wynn in the past, and and we were talking about your grandfather. I love that story. I don't know if you've told it to death, but uh, I mean, he was an innovator in the uh, space age bachelor pad. You know, cool stereophonic. Uh, he wrote ping pong for goodness yeah. sakes, which people have heard a million <laughs> yeah. times. He was born Alvin McBurney and wanted to be an electrical engineer, but he ended up being Alvino Ray and mm. being a musician. Mm-hmm. But he always wanted to. His first love was like ham radio and tinkering with electronics. So, wow. you know, when he had the chance, I mean, he met. Esquivel and Esquivel was really into stereo and he was like I love thinking about recording I love thinking about weird new ideas I mean he was 93 he got you know a whole new recording system yeah he was using (laughs) Pro Tools he had like he had his Pro Tools open with like a bass he was like doubling 
the guitar line, like the bass with his op- yeah, octave pedal, the- <laughs> like at 96, you know, it's just like. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry we never got to see him jam with the Arcade Fire. I mean, oh, you could have given him a bucket or a bell or something. Just, everybody's on stage banging something. What, what kind of background did you guys have in music? Were you in bands together before the Arcade Fire, uh, Will? No, I mean, when sort of started playing music in high school and college, whenever I was there, I was the other person in the room. He'd be playing guitar, and he'd be like, Will, play the bass. Will, play the piano. Yeah. Like, okay, fine, whatever. <laughs> uh, now, ended up gravitating toward Montreal. Wynn went to school there. That, that was the primary reason for him going to Montreal in the first place. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going to start a band there. He was going there to study, correct? He sort of went there knowing that it was a... He wanted to play music, mm-hmm. and he knew it was a good place to live. And he had friends there who he played music with, so it was sort of like, oh, why don't I go to a city where everything is 20% off and <laughs> play some music and go, I mean, go to school too, but school was never really the focus. Mm-hmm. Although he did get a degree from McGill University, right? Well, you got to get your degree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, something very, to fall back on. The Butler's a very educated family here. This is not these these guys aren't pikers. They go to school while they while they play music. He will like Will was touring with us while he was finishing his degree, and he was like taking planes to meet us on tour in between assignments. And yeah, it was crazy. He was tough to get a hold of. I remember we we wanted to do an interview with with Will, and they said, "Well, his schedule. I mean, between school and <laughs> and touring, I mean, he, he's really hard to pin down." You know, I'm going, you know, wow, this guy's like, you know, he's got a better life than I do. That's for sure. Well, it, it's been a whirlwind. You know, you guys recorded an EP, and then you put out the funeral album. You know, and everybody says we expected Merge to sell thirty thousand. How incredible would that be? Thirty thousand <laughs> records. Imagine that. And instead, it becomes one of the indie success stories of recent years. And uh, it's just been a, a sort of insane. You guys find yourself at Coachella and playing with David Bowie and playing at Lollapalooza and these huge gigs. Within a year of releasing that record. Within a year. And right. it's the biggest selling record in the history of one of the most respected independent labels in, in the country. 350,000 copies still selling. second record neon bible is you know well on track to do that and more so as jim says uh being in the middle of that going from unknown local montreal band in the summer of 2004 to headlining coachella and Lollapalooza in front of these massive audiences within a year later how did you manage to keep perspective in the middle of all that i think it helps that we're seven people or between seven to ten people you know, it's not like we're this isolated little group with, surrounded by yes-men. I mean, we're sur- surrounded by ourselves, and then we have all these people that we work but, with. We're really and also, great. we're all really close. We're friends, you know, even friends first, and then we also play together. We're talking to Will Butler and Regine Chassain of Arcade Fire on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio, American Public Media. All right, so you guys did your best to, to not get sucked into the whirlwind of, of success of funeral. Nevertheless, there was pressure in making the follow-up, the Neon Bible. Locked yourselves up in a basement for a couple of months in Montreal, tried to not take phone calls, tried to not <laughs> get distracted. Was it weighing on you? Gee, all these people are saying we're great. Now we have to make another record. Um, no, really, like truly, like... Because I wasn't thinking about that when we wrote Funeral, you know? So 
why should I be thinking about it now? You know, when it, we wrote Neon Bible. It was really a, easy in Montreal to just go back to living a normal life. I mean, it took a while after tour just to lose some weight and get back to a normal sleep schedule. <laughs> but uh, but it, it's an easy place to just have a normal life. Well, and I got the sense from uh, talking to Mac McCon, the... Uh, the founder of Merge Records, um, technically your boss, quote unquote. Although he would he would cringe <laughs> to hear that, but uh, in fact he says you guys are a totally independent entity. He he basically said you guys paid for this record yourself. Yeah. And that's pretty amazing. So do you keep your line your eye on the bottom line? Like oh my God, we can't. Maybe we shouldn't go to Budapest and record with this choir, which is mm-hmm. which in which in fact was what you did. I mean, luckily Funeral was successful enough. I mean, it didn't sell millions of copies, but we didn't. We weren't really going off the deep end. We weren't. We weren't sort of buying the fanciest, newest things in the world, partly because it's not as much fun. And like, we invested a lot <laughs> in the in the next album too. Like yeah, I mean, we we bought the studio, we refurbished it and stuff, which is all sort of for the future as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you'll always have a place to go to make records. Yeah. yeah. And I gather that the songs start. Regine, you either bring in a, a piece or, or uh, Wynn brings in a song. Or you, do you play it on piano or acoustic guitar? Or how do the tunes start? Oh, it can be anything, really. It could be a beat, could be a lyric, could be something you see on TV, could be a chord progression. It's interesting that you say a beat because, uh, to me, the, one of the keys of the Arcade Fire is, is the rhythms. And you see that when it becomes celebratory on stage with everybody almost playing a percussion instrument. And um, I asked Jeremy about that, and he said that sometimes you would would show him the beat at the very beginning. The whole thing will start with you just <laughs> rudimentally. Uh, well, I just love thinking about beats. Like f- for me, it's like so important. And what often happens is that we'll be playing Win and I, and I'll be playing. I'll just end up playing drums because I I know how to p- play piano pretty good, but. I've played it my whole life, and <laughs> I'm almost like, oh, piano, whatever. So, like, I always like to ch- be challenged, so I'll, I'll just play drums, but I'm always trying to find the perfect beat that will, if we come up with lyrics, the beat that will, f- where the hits will fall in between the words and fa- find, like, the right places for fills, and mm-hmm. I I like doing that. Well like, well, like, like, Wake Up off the last album, the first half is the We Will Rock You beat. And the second half is the, you know, is the lust for life slash can't hurry love beat. want to make a song that has really basic chords that has really really almost stupid classic rock and roll beat but has something to it like we want to make something out of these parts that could conceivably be empty by this point in rock but and roll not, history it's not really but it's, it's uh, i mean lust for life is kind of a take on the bo diddley beat you yeah. know yeah. And, and uh and it's got this syncopated feel that uh when you guys get going in that groove, it, it really just brings 30,000 people with you. I think in a, in a recording environment, we want to make everything perfect. But then in a live environment, if there's space to fill and you can fill it in an exciting way, then fill it. 
Pretty early on, you guys were incorporating, you know, strings and brass, and that seemed to be, I mean, Regine, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like the vision of the band was always a bit bigger than just guitar, bass, and drums. Yeah, yeah, for me, always, because, you know, like, there's so many different colors that you can get with other instruments, and I just, I like to play with it, too. But we've, we've definitely, I don't know, we've always sort of aspired to, we always had all our friends playing the instruments, but we didn't want just you know, everyone playing the same line necessarily. No, we no, always no. aspired to a little bit more orchestrated, like a cross between like your friends playing and like a real orchestra. It's oh, you make do we with what you have. Cause yeah. you know, like no cars go. Like I always had the horns and strings in my head. This song is really old. Cause it was on the EP. It was on the first EP. Yeah. And you re-recorded it for the yeah. new album, Neon Bible. No cars go. have strings or horns at that time so I was playing the accordion to imitate the or- the swelling of an orchestra you know but and that's what I picked up because I was like okay what what do I have that like could sort of do what I have in mind so I used the accordion well speaking of you know uh, interesting choices of uh, the instrumental palette uh, you do some tap dancing right Regine yeah. on uh, Antichrist <laughs> television blues uh, that's not a, you know, hey, I just feel so, some tap dancing coming on here. That needs to be in the song. Yeah, sometimes <laughs> I feel like that. Um, yeah, I just wanted some tap dance. What inspired that in particular on that song? Uh, what inspired that? Our polyrhythmic uh, sensibilities. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Antichrist Television Blues, I guess, is uh, basically a song about this Svengali father figure uh, manipulating his young daughter into a into, into a career of yeah, stardom. And maybe, he, yeah, that was like the little tap dancing girl like being forced to <laughs> do a show. <laughs> That's a pretty nasty song. Uh, <laughs> well, the whole album, you, you yeah. would think that it might be difficult to make a darker album than a record called Funeral. Yeah. Uh, Neon Bible's harder to pin down. Title comes from the John Kennedy Tool novel, right? Confederacy of Dunces. There's talk of World War III coming. You know, you can listen to No Cars Go in its new incarnation and think mm, global warming. You know, you can you can uh, working for the church while your life falls apart, singing Hallelujah with the fear in your heart. What what about the religious stuff in particular? The Neon Bible title, the idea. How, how much did you guys grow up with that in Texas? Um, a little bit. I mean, it was definitely more on the air in Texas than. A lot of places in this world, but not not particular. I mean, we were just in the suburbs, so I sort of think of a neon Bible as more of a city thing than a suburb thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the actual image is, and sometimes the the sign is an actual like salvation. Like I, my fiance lives by the Philadelphia Church, the big Jesus saves mm-hmm. on is on Clark Street anyway. But sometimes it's actual salvation, and sometimes it's like. We're trying to get your money. So it's sort of weird. You can be driving down Division Street, and it's, you know, burned out buildings and lots, and all of a sudden there's that neon, you know, flashing cross, you know. And and it's an amazing thing. It helps some people, and then sometimes, you know, for me it's a pretty complicated. Well, I think you nailed it on the head there, Will, because I think the complexity of the themes, and, and people can get what they want out of these songs in a way, 
which may explain, you know, how you guys react to them on stage. It's different every night. I asked Wynn about it directly, you know, Neon Bible, tell me about this. I mean, there's a lot of religious stuff coursing through this stuff. And his answer was uh, pretty succinct. There's this idea that Christianity and consumerism are completely compatible, which I think is the great insanity of our times, which seems to me like his summing up statement of what, what this re- record is about in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and that's pretty dark. Um, <laughs> I mean, on the fan, that is a, you know, that's a State of the Union address right there in a lot of ways. And I guess the question for me is, how are you able to perform this record with exuberance and with that, with that feeling that you guys bring? I mean, was it, is it difficult integrating these songs in with uh, the funeral stuff, which was obviously a huge hit? Well, I, I, there was a, an evangelical preacher named Tony Campalo who I saw speak once, and it was ama- he was like, just consider, as a Christian, maybe your religion actually forbids you to drive a Mercedes. Just consider it. You know, maybe you should give that money to the poor. And then he concluded, talking about, it, he saw a preach-off, and he, you know, he gave his, his sermon, and people were like, yeah, yeah. And then some guy got up and was like, it's Friday, and, like, Jesus is on the cross, and blood is streaming from his forehead, and, like, the heavens are riven with thunder. But Sunday's coming, and, like, it's Friday, and, like, the Romans are laughing, and they've got blood on their hands, and they're eating children. But Sunday's coming, and, you know, just like— and it was sort of this weird, angry, but jubilant thing. He was, he was like, and at, he said at the end, the preacher was just yelling, Sunday's coming, Sunday's coming. You know, just like, oh, but it like sort of excited, like rejoicing, but also like really angry at what was going on. Why don't you each pick a song from Neon Bible, and uh, we'll play it. We want to play something, and tell us why or what it means to you or how it came about. Or I guess I'll pick The Well in the Lighthouse, and The Well in the Lighthouse was a pretty ideal recording situation. We just we sat down with the song. We played it about 120 times over the course of a week, <laughs> and then we were like, oh, we're really good at playing this song, just sitting in a room, like, hitting, like, bang, 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 you know, just everyone not playing their instruments particularly well, but playing them very hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we were mixing, we ended up listening to a lot of the tracks on solo and just sort of giggling the whole time because there's so many errors in there and so many slip notes and so many... But the like, spirit just, like, was there. ...total flubs. But it's, you know, it's at the core, that song especially is just us hammering in a, away in a room. And then, you know, and then like six violins and then a couple other things. But anyway... <laughs> Thank you. 
you can you pick a tune uh oh my god it's so hard it's like choose your favorite baby um <laughs> doesn't have to be a favorite just uh, one song choice. You like. yeah. i know but then the other ones are gonna cry um let's go with uh intervention i like it and uh mm-hmm. <laughs> <the> <laughs> is that one of yours did you write that one uh i wrote the the chords and some of the lyrics yeah and it's played on the church organ yeah that's was that the one in the church in Montreal that you went to, or yeah, yeah? yeah. Uh, it's not our little church because this is such a big organ. There's no way that fits. <laughs> it's a massive pipe organ yeah. in a church in downtown Montreal. Yeah, right? that's it. That's and it. you played that yeah. part. Yeah, yeah. And th- is that how it originated? Kind of think you were thinking this would sound awesome on a huge church organ. Well, we I was playing this this on the piano, and I was playing it in in G, and then. Wynn wanted to sing it in C, and we were sort of arguing and like about, oh, no, play it in C, play it in G. And so we like hit a compromise where it starts in C, and then there's a key change. It goes in G. <laughs> so everyone's happy. Um, <laughs> and, but then we were looking for an instrument to really bring the intensity of the lyrics. And so we're like, well, the church organ. Mm-hmm. And so we've, we went there and we recorded it. Now, you just don't walk into a church and record it. Yeah, now, you know, I mean, they have these boxes now, you know, with, with digital synth, and it's got 400 voices. Yeah, There's something so wonderfully resonant of the, the, the most excessive era of progressive rock, when Yes would, like, fly to Switzerland just so that Wakeman could play that particular medieval church organ in, yeah. the, in the church in Bern, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, that's wonderful. <laughs> but it's a pain in the ass. I know. Because yeah. you have a little box that can do that. But it doesn't sound the same. You put some reverb on it. Yeah. Uh, not the same kind of reverb. It's actually, in, it's crazy. The vibrations that you get from that, it's... It made our recording engineer cry. Oh. <laughs> All right. I'll bet. I thought I had, I thought I, something bad happened because I finished. And then the engineer, uh, Scott Coburn, like he wasn't looking and he was looking away. And, and I was like, oh, no, he was sort of looking at the machines. And I was like, oh, we didn't record or something happened. And then he turned around and he was like... Oh, like, teary eyes. <laughs> That's a powerful thing. That's great. Are there pictures of that? 
don't know. <laughs> it's, it's oh, on video. On. I think it's on video. We have it on home video. Someday we watch when it. you all have kids, you have to show them that. <laughs> yeah, oh my God. That's great. The king's taken back the throne. The useless see the sun. When they say they're cutting off the throne, they tell them you're not home. Place to hide. You're fighting as a soldier on the side. You're still a soldier in your mind, still nothing's on the line. Say it's money that we need, as if we're only mouths to feed. I know no matter what you say, there's some debts you'll never pay. Working for the church while your family dies You take what they give you and you keep it inside Every spark of friendship and love will die without a home Hear the soldier groan, glad it alone Take me out of here Don't want to fight, don't want to die Just want to hear you cry Who's gonna throw the very first stone? We want to thank Regine and Will from Arcade Fire for being our guests today on Sound Opinions. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yep. In a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, it's my turn to drop a quarter in the Desert Island jukebox.
You're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Whenever we can, one of us goes to a desert island and picks a record they can't live without, and this week it's Jim's turn. Greg, I am mightily excited because one of my favorite albums of all time has just been issued in a new deluxe edition. No disrespect to Matthew Sweet, The Shins, The Smithereens, Teenage Fan Club, Jellyfish, (laughs) Fountains of Wayne, The Posies. But when it comes to a power pop album, if I had to choose one to go to the desert island, I'm going with the bongos, drums along the Hudson. I love this record. 1982 power pop masterpiece. Now, granted, part of it is that I grew up in Hoboken, New Jersey, right? It's a weird and funky, eccentric little town. And in the early 80s, the village and Soho were gentrifying. All the artists got priced out. So they moved to Hoboken. Artists, musicians living with first-generation, second-generation Italian immigrants and the Hispanic community. It was a great, vibrant place. You could live cheap. You could play at Maxwell's, which is one of the greatest rock clubs in the world, still in existence. The Bongos were the house band. And their album, Drums Along the Hudson, obviously it's about the Bongos living on the Hudson River in Hoboken. I think this is a rock and roll version of Catcher in the Rye. (laughs) Sweet but wise, naive but cynical mix that Holden Caulfield represented in literature. Richard Barone and his bandmates captured that just coming of age. What it feels like to first venture, take the subway across into Manhattan and go to a rock club and it's scary and you know there's men and there's women and maybe they want to have sex with you and what's it like (laughs) to have sex anyway? All this information is coming in. It explodes in these two minute pop songs. The one I'm going to play is the centerpiece of this album. I think it is absolutely one of the best pop songs ever written in this genre of power pop. It's called The Bull Rushes. Bull Rushes are hedges or weeds, you know, uh, in, in England, right? And the lyrics, a cable reaches down from heaven, unleavened, bread comes down from heaven. That's the entire first verse. I don't know what that means. It's something mystical. It's like Peter Gabriel's Salisbury Hill. There's some weird messianic mystical thing happening. And one of the things that make the bongos so great is that while there are these beautiful harmonies and catchy hooks, Frank Giannini was a monsterful drummer, man. He was just just a powerhouse. And Rob Norris was this great bass player who played really hard and had these melodic lines. And boy, you want to know why he was the coolest man in Hoboken, New Jersey? He had been in the Velvet Underground. Granted, Lou Reed had <laughs> left the Velvet Underground. It was the post-Lou Reed, Doug Yule Velvet Underground. But the coolest moment in my life, when I was 13, I went to Maxwell's wearing a Velvet Underground white light white heat t-shirt. Norris came over, pats me on the shoulder, says, you're all right, kid. And I'm like, yes! I want to grow up and be a rock writer and talk about how great the bongos are, and now I'm going to play them on my radio show, The Bull Rushes by the Bongos. <laughs> okay, well.
Isn't that great? The Bull Rushes by the Bongos, Drums Along the Hudson, out in a new edition, and Moby recorded a new version of that song with the three guys. They're back together. I hope they I hope they go on tour and come on Sound Opinions. <laughs> that would be cool. What do we got next week, Greg? Next week, we are going to look at the life and career of Yoko Ono, who is back on the road for some rare shows. Uh, how did she go from one of the most reviled people in rock and roll to an indie music heroine? This week's chat with Arcade Fire was recorded by Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse. And as always, our intrepid and hardworking team is Todd Bachman, Matt Spiegel, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, our producers, and Chuck the Intern, Chuck Lee, on interning duties. We want to say a special thanks to Colleen Ross, who's been our marketing guru and, and helping us with publicity. She's leaving the station. We're going to miss her. And, of course, our fearless leader, executive producer, Guiding Light, is Mr. Tori Malatia, who I heard wrote the album title for Avril Lavigne, and he hasn't gotten any credit either. <laughs> In case you've missed any of our recent shows, here's a record we reviewed on Sound Opinions. And when you sing about love, what are you thinking of? Even a child learns you don't waste it as long as the world is waking up. Then there is no That is a song called Even a Child, probably the most upbeat tune on Time on Earth, the first new album from Crowded House in 14 years. Call me a heathen. I'm just not perhaps mature enough to appreciate the uh, the charm of Neil Finn's songwriting. I didn't like Split Ends. I didn't like Crowded House. <laughs> I didn't like Neil Finn's solo. It's a trash at record as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really dull. And uh, as I said, <laughs> after that first couple of couple of hit songs for Crowded House, it was kind of downhill for the band. I don't hear the groundswell of like, come on, we need another ground yeah. Crowded House record. They're just filling up the air with another kind of really mediocre adult pop record, and Lord knows we don't need more of those. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. All right, come on, guys. Trash, the new Crowded House album. Uh, my name is Tony. I live in Los Angeles. I listen to your podcast on demand. You know, you guys need to stop sucking up to the prog rock of your youth. And, you know, acknowledge some really good adult pop. Well, what's wrong with that? Um... There are great books, there are great melodies, and there are some really, really touching lyrics on that album. And to just trash something because you've lumped it in with a specific genre seems a bit beyond you guys. Uh, I'm really surprised that you're quick to trash it, and it makes me rethink listening to your program. I hear a twinge of, you know, trashing to be trashing just because everybody else of a certain group likes it, and that's disappointing to me. Hey guys, love the podcast. My name is Brian Dillard. I'm calling from Chicago. Um, I'm calling because for now, for the second time in a couple months, you guys have mentioned uh, Peter Gabriel tracks uh, without mentioning the fact that both of them had uh, Kate Bush backing vocals. Got to get some food. I'm 
Games Without Frontiers and No Self Control both have amazing backing vocals by England's Kate Bush. And just wondering if you even knew that Kate was on those tracks and uh, wondering why you didn't mention them. Personally, I find a way to work her into conversation whatever I humanly can, but that's just me. Thanks. Hey, Jim and Greg. My name is Pat, and I live in Olympia, Washington, and uh, I've been on a, a Sound Opinions bender the past week because I just found your podcast, and so I've been listening to every single one of them. And, you know, I'm a middle-aged guy, and, and uh, i got a couple of young kids, and, and most of my conversations are about, you know, fairies and cartoon characters and diapers and candy and that those are my adult conversations and, and listening to your show really makes me feel like I've sat around with some friends and had a beer and talked passionately about something that I really really love and uh, used to be pretty involved with my local indie rock scene and so it's been it's been a real treat to feel like I don't, I'm not completely out of touch and to feel like I'm never going to be in touch again so I just I just want to tell you that your show does has done wonders in my life, and uh, and I wanted to thank you. Okay, thanks again. Bye. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Mm-hmm.